Well, good morning, church. Nice to see you guys this morning. It's great to, uh, I know we had a much louder worship set last week with a full band. It's nice, you know, but which is good, but it, it, other times it, we don't get to hear your voices as much, so it's good to hear you singing this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Luke. As, as Mignon said, uh, the, if, if you've got the notes that I put in the back, I was wrong. I, I forgot to edit that part of the notes. Uh, and we're in Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 19 this morning. You know, I, I know many of you know that there's a few hats that I wear in life. Um, many of you know that I'm a business owner. And you know that I'm a father to eight, soon-to-be nine children. Which means that I'm used to dealing with conflict. Just my life feels at times that it's just nothing but constant conflict. And a lot of times conflict, when we deal with conflict, it shows a lot about us, doesn't it? It reveals a lot about us. And I find it interesting a lot of times when I'm sometimes dealing with one of my, one of my children, there'll be an instance where maybe an injustice is done and and one of the kids comes to me and he tells me what the other kid's done. And, and in that moment, the, the one in, in the wrong, it's just obvious that they were wrong. Like, you're wrong. Like, there's no evidence here showing that you're any way, shape, or form right. You're just wrong. And then it's interesting in that moment just to see how, 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 the, how the kid just... just digs their heels into the ground and just refuses just to admit they're wrong. It might not even be the biggest deal in the world. And the consequences in that moment might not actually be that great, but they're ever increasing because of your unwillingness to admit that you're wrong. All we're, all we're looking here is just to make things right. But it doesn't just stop it at home with the children. This problem is not unique to children. As I was putting some finishing touches on this sermon, I I get a call last night around 9 p.m. from my business that one of my employees had left her purse in the office and overnight and apparently the next day all her credit cards and everything inside her purse were stolen. So I had to search through the video cameras. And lo and behold, I found the thief. I found him. I'm good at it. Don't try me. So I found, I found him. It was one of our, I, in my restaurant, I have an overnight cleaning crew that they come in and they, and they clean the floors for us. I pay them, you know, so my, my team doesn't have to do it. I, I pay a team. And, and, the, and the gentleman that came to, to clean the floors that night, lo and behold, he was the thief. He found the purse in the office, and I've got him on camera, and he comes and he grabs the purse right off the wall. It was on a, it was on a hook, and he grabs it off the wall. He takes it down, he spends a few minutes rummaging through the purse, and he takes the, I see him, he puts the, puts the credit cards in his pocket, then he puts the purse back on the wall, and then he continues his job. To which I promptly last night make a, make a call to the floor cleaning company, get the, the owner on the, uh, of the company on, on the phone. And shortly after that, we get this employee on the phone and he is 
adamantly denying that he ever stole any purse. In fact, he didn't touch it. I said, sir, I'm looking at a video of you touching the purse and taking things out of the purse and putting them into your pocket. I didn't do it. I'm I'm floored. It's crazy. You are caught. You have been exposed. But you will dig your heels in. Not lest we think far too little of children or lest we judge children too harshly, lest we judge this thief too harshly. Dear friends, I must say, there are often times in our lives as the word of God is opened, as we interact with Christ Jesus, and he exposes sin in our own lives. We have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to confess that sin, repent of that sin, Or we have an opportunity to dig our heels in. To rebel against God. To argue with God. And to not give Him the glory that is due to Him. We're going to talk about that this morning. My main point is this, is this, that Christ, Christ is calling all image bearers of God to give God the worship that He is due. Christ is calling all image bearers of God to give God the worship that he is due. Hopefully, friends, you've made your way to Luke chapter 20. I will begin in verse 19, and I will read through verses 20 to to verse 26. Please follow along as I read. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Main point, Christ is calling all image bearers of God to give God the worship that he is due. Point one this morning. Point one, we must see the folly and danger of unrepentant sin. We must see the folly and danger of unrepentant sin. Friends, if if we're not careful we might conclude that the religious leaders in Jesus' day were fairly ignorant of the things that Jesus said. Perhaps we might think that the reason Jesus had so much conflict with the scribes and Pharisees was because they simply misunderstood Jesus' teachings. 
See, this passage in, in, in Luke chapter 20 this morning, church, doesn't give us the option to believe that. In fact, verse 19 plainly tells us this, that they rightly perceived the parable that Jesus, was, uh, that Jesus taught in verses 9 through 18 that Doug talked about last week. They rightly perceived that that parable was told about them. They got it. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. To put, it, to put it more explicitly, suss that out a bit, they understood that Jesus was describing them, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, as the wicked tenants that plotted violence and murder because of their idolatrous and greedy hearts. It is these that Jesus spoke of. They would not receive the vineyard. Rather, they would receive the anger and wrath of God Almighty because they rejected the Messiah. What is most interesting to me is how these religious leaders respond to Jesus' parable. We might recall from, from Luke 19.47 that the religious leaders in Jerusalem were already seeking to destroy Jesus because he cleansed the temple and began teaching truth in the temple to such an extent that the people were hanging on his every word. Because Jesus was gaining such a following in Jerusalem and in the temple of all places, they were actively seeking Jesus' demise. They were plotting and planning and, and scheming. It didn't exactly matter what they did, church. They just wanted Jesus gone and were willing to do whatever needed to be done in order to make it happen. Jesus being sovereign, knew of their plans, church. He was not caught off guard. He simply warned them of the judgment to come because of their rejection of their Messiah. As the one true prophet of God, Jesus stands there and exposes their character and exposes their plotting. In a way, Jesus was saying this. He said, I know exactly what you religious leaders are plotting. You're not fooling me. And surely, as Jesus exposes them, the religious leaders would be cut to the heart in that moment, right? Surely that would be the response. Surely they would have been a bit introspective and even fearful that their sin was brought into the light, right? Surely. I mean, the most obvious response would be to confess their sin, repent, and receive the grace that this Messiah had been known to offer, right? That would be the most obvious response in light of how Jesus has exposed them. Unfortunately, the text tells us that this was not their response. Instead, they hardened their hearts and continued in their sin. We might ask, why, why didn't the religious leaders repent? You think about that? Have we thought about that so far? So we've read through Luke. Why didn't they just repent? It seems like the epitome of foolishness to stand there denying their corruption as Jesus is exposing them for their hypocrisy. Deep inside, they knew that Jesus' critique of them was accurate. They had fooled the crowds, but they had not fooled Jesus. So why not repent? 
Friends, because they were guilty of idolatry. They loved their sin far more than they loved God. The problem for the religious leaders is that Jesus confronted their idol. Uh, You might think, the religious leaders didn't have an idol. They they weren't worshiping a, a, a golden calf or some bronze statue. However, friends, they were worshiping something far more sinister and just as unworthy of their worship. They were worshiping themselves. Like many in this world, they were guilty of self-worship and self-glory. The religious leaders had created this giant religious system that sought to make much of them. Every rule, every regulation, every item sold in the temple, every bit of the oral law existed to benefit them. Every instance of fasting, giving, or praying was an attempt to make much of them. And from the very start of Jesus' ministry, he has done nothing but expose them for the frauds that they were. And never was it clearer that these religious leaders were wretched sinners on the way to hell and that they were to be avoided by the people of Israel than when Jesus cleared the temple and began to teach explicitly against them. It was there that Jesus most outlandishly confronted their idolatry. As they stand exposed for all the world to see what is their response, ultimately they, they, they sought to shut Jesus up for good by having him arrested. When the text says the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, it, it doesn't mean that they were about to throw hands and have a brawl in the street in Jerusalem. That's, that's, not, what it, that's not what it says. That's, that's what it means. Laying hands on him meant having him arrested. They wanted him out of the picture. They thought that if they they could silence Jesus from exposing their sin, they could remain in their self-exalting religious system, remain wealthy, and hopefully one day receive the blessings promised to the descendants of Abraham through their outward-looking obedience to the law. That was their goal. That was their hope. These religious leaders didn't see Jesus as a gracious Messiah, mercifully revealing their sin to them and offering them true joy and salvation if they repented and trusted in Him. They saw Jesus as a threat to their way of life. They saw Jesus not as one who offered life, but one who would take what they loved most dear, their idols. And because of that, they hated Him. They sought to conceal the truth and carry on in their idolatry. Friends, this is what Jesus does to us today as well, even in this moment. You see, see, church, to, to open up this book, this book that you have in your hands, to open this, to open up this book is to do something extremely impactful and extremely consequential to our way of life. To open this book is to hear from God. Hebrews 4.12-13 tells us, For the word 
of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. In other words, church, the Word of God exposes us for who we really are. When we fellowship with Jesus through the preaching of His Word, or even in our own personal reading of the Word, we know that it often reveals sin in our lives. It is in those moments that the Holy Spirit speaks to us, convicting us of areas where we love so many things more than we love Jesus. Often, we have secret sins that no one knows about. It's just us and God. Yet, as we read the Word, it is as if the Holy Spirit is staring us right in the eyes and confronting us about our sin. Friends, in that moment, we have the opportunity to react in one of two ways. First, we can ignore the Holy Spirit and continue in our sin. This takes on a a variety of forms. It, It can look like simply excusing our sin and seeking to justify our sinful behavior or heart postures. We try to justify it. It can look like trying to keep our sin hidden in hopes that no one will find out all the while forgetting that it is not man's opinion that matters, but God's. It can look like simply ignoring the sin and hopefully it goes away and hopefully it gets better. Church, to ignore the Holy Spirit and continue in your sin is a pathway to death, destruction, and a true lack of joy and happiness in this life. Yet, the second possible response is to confess your sin to God and repent. Why would we do this? Why would we confess our sin to God? Why would we repent? Is it because we need to earn God's favor? No! We do this because God is a gracious and merciful Heavenly Father who delights in giving us grace. Do you understand that, church? Do you hear what I said? That God, He delights. It brings Him joy. It brings Him happiness to give us grace. It brings Him joy. He doesn't delight in our sin. No, He delights in exalting what Christ did on the cross. That brings God joy. See, the Father's wrath is fully satisfied in Christ. When we repent of our sin, we aren't met with a Father who continues to scold us or give us the silent treatment. No, God joyfully, joyfully forgives us. And not only that, but He continues to change us and make us more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Community Bible Church, if we have such a gracious Father, who lavishes His mercy on us. If that's true, 
how foolish are we to continue in our sin? It's unthinkable. How irrational must we be to ignore the word of God and the promptings of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Even today, church, as, as, as the word of God is being preached this, this, in this moment, may we have hearts that are eager to hear from the Lord rather than standing in opposition to him like the religious leaders in Israel. Point two, we must see the hypocrisy that surrounds unrepentant sin. We must see the hypocrisy that surrounds unrepentant sin. When we continue in unrepentant sin, church, it it typically leads to nothing more than a life full of ugly hypocrisy. Look at how this plays out in the lives of the scribes and of the chief priests here in this text. First, we must understand that the religious leaders tended to have a reputation for being God-fearing people. That was their reputation. For instance, The chief priest had a reputation among the Israelites for giving their lives to make sure that proper worship was observed in the temple. There was no group that the modern Jews would have thought was more God-fearing than the chief priests. Of course, we know that that the reputation they had with the crowds was a badge of honor that even these religious leaders wore with great pride. They loved their reputation with the people. Unfortunately, We know that their reputation was inaccurate. While they had that reputation with the crowds, they certainly didn't have that reputation with God himself. Don't don't misunderstand me though, church. God certainly knew that these religious leaders were a deeply fearful bunch. However, it wasn't God that they feared, but man. In all their training and supposed understanding of the Old Testament, in their lifelong commitment to following the requirements of the law regarding sacrificial worship in the temple, in all their work represented, in all that Christ had revealed himself to be through his teaching, miracles, and righteous life, in all the prophecies that Christ fulfilled, as Jesus steps into their lives, they don't fear him one bit. No fear at all. And as these crowds were captivated by every word of Jesus' teaching in the temple, the religious leaders knew that if they came out and spoke boldly and bluntly against Jesus, the crowds would riot against them. They wouldn't turn against Jesus. They would turn against them. Therefore, they feared these crowds. They feared being exposed for who they really were. They feared losing their reputations. They feared losing money. They feared losing the respect that they worked so hard to earn. They feared losing the greetings in the marketplaces. They feared losing their front row seats of dignity. They feared losing the ability to serve how they always serve. Sure, they embraced the reputation and outward facade of being God-fearing men, but they didn't fear God. This morning, friend, as you consider your own life, would you say that it is marked by more of a healthy fear of God or an idolatrous fear of man? Are you content to walk in sin as long as no one finds out? If your wife, friends, children, grandchildren, or members of this church knew the things you did in secret, would you tremble? 
Would you be terrified if every thought, every longing, and every ambition of your heart was put on display for all of Instagram to see? Do you walk in the same fear before God when it comes to your sin? Friends, we must confess that at times we feel completely comfortable walking before God in our sin, but the thought of being exposed before man cripples us in fear. While it is completely possible to keep sin hidden from man in this life, it is never possible to keep our sin hidden from God. He knows our sinful desires lusts, and pursuits. We might be able to clear our search history, shred our bank statements, or create an alibi that hides our sin from man. However, God sees it all. There is no clearing the search history with God. We must remember that it is before God that we will give an account for our lives, not man. Even as Christians who have received the grace of God, we should still walk in a very healthy and reverent fear before God. Not as hypocrites in outward style only, but inwardly as our hearts seek to honor Christ. In verses 20 through 21, we see another example of of hypocrisy as the religious leaders pretend to be sincere before Jesus. These religious leaders... They came before Jesus and praised him for his sound teaching. You see that? They applauded his sense of justice and lack of demonstration of unrooted partiality to one group, cause, or political affiliation. The leaders raved about his eloquent speaking abilities. They even esteemed Jesus as a one who taught the true way of God. Church, can we give a hearty amen to these confessions of the religious leaders for one moment? Amen. Their statements were right and they were true. The accuracy of their professions before Jesus should be commended. However, as James Edwards notes, the problem of hypocrisy is not that it does not tell the truth, but that it tells the truth without sincerity. I'll say that again. The problem of hypocrisy is not that it does not tell the truth, but that it tells the truth without sincerity. We know that the profession from their mouths did not match the condition of their hearts. They were not there to praise Jesus, but to patronize him. They did not come to exalt Jesus, but to trap him. They did not come for the purpose of rejoicing in righteousness, but for the purpose of delighting in evil. How do we know this? Because the text explicitly says it. Like a lion on the prowl, they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said. In other words, these religious leaders who were known, who had a reputation for loving righteousness and spent all of their days supposedly pursuing righteous worship were now trying to deceitfully set a trap for Jesus. They weren't hoping for holiness but destruction. They sought to set up a scenario where Jesus would have been discredited by the crowds as an idolater of Rome or discredited by Rome as an insurrectionist, which would have resulted in his arrest and likely execution. 
Either way, Jesus would no longer pose a threat to their lives. This was their plan. Lest we judge the religious leaders too harshly for seeking to flatter Jesus while hoping for his destruction in their hearts, we must ask ourselves this church, how often do we heap up empty phrases of praise to the Lord while our hearts are far from him? Isn't it easy to learn all of the right Christianese phrases? We, we know the right things to say and the wrong things to say. We know the right things to affirm and the right things to reject. We know, the, we know when to raise our hands. We, we know how to pray eloquently. We know some false doctrine when we hear it. We might love specific praise songs and delight in congregational singing. We know the right preachers to affirm and the right preachers to reject. Yet we've all been in those seasons, haven't we? Or moments where we honor Christ with our lips, yet our hearts are so far from Him. Been there, haven't we? I was telling, I was telling my wife this morning in my early days of, of preaching, I just, my, 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 one of my biggest ambitions as I, as I got up here years ago, I just, it would have been to just preach an awesome sermon. And, and, and I must confess that, that, that in that, like part of that, a lot of that, probably most of it was selfish. I wanted people to think much of me. It didn't mean my doctrine was inaccurate. It didn't mean it hadn't been time to get it right. But I know in that moment, it's easy to, you can get the pulpit, or you can sing, or you can give, or you can do, you can do all this stuff. And you know what? Your heart can be far from God, but you go through the motions. But it looks outwardly righteous. Church, God knows it though. We can hide it from one another. Can't hide it from God. We've all been in those moments where we're having a, a knock it out fight with our family before we get to church, and we might be seething in hatred while sitting in our chairs singing in Christ alone. You've been there? In those moments, our hearts are holding on to sin far more than we're clinging to Christ, even if our lips are professing hope in Christ. When our hearts long for our sin far more than we long for Jesus, we must understand that we are identifying as the old self, as enemies of God, that in that moment, no matter how religious we might appear, we're identifying as enemies. See, Jesus isn't impressed by our theological prowess. Jesus isn't impressed by our loud singing. Jesus isn't impressed by our abundant giving. Jesus isn't impressed by our rigorous prayer life or outward behavior. While all these things are good, Jesus is most pleased with hearts that truly love him. Jesus' desire for us this morning is not simply to honor him with the right words, but to truly love him with our whole hearts. May we repent of any hypocritical worship before the Lord as the Holy Spirit leads. As we continue to think about how the religious leaders sought to get rid of Jesus, we see their primary strategy and greatest desire was to get rid of him by delivering, by delivering him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor, as cited as you see in verse 20. They would do this by asking Jesus a question posed in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? We might not quite understand the cultural significance of such a question in first century Jerusalem. There were few topics more controversial 
than the issue of paying tribute to Rome and Jerusalem in the first century. We've said it many times throughout our study of Luke, but it bears repeating that Israel was under Roman occupation. This was particularly problematic to the Jews because they were aware of the countless prophecies in the Old Testament that talked about the freedom of God's people. Being under Roman occupation, needless to say, did not feel free. It was oppressive. And the Israelites longed for the days where they had a righteous king ruling over them again. One like David, and especially like the long-awaited king who would rule on David's throne forever. Instead, in this moment, in this context, they lived under Roman rule, which they viewed as barbaric, oppressive, and idolatrous even, as Rome existed to bring glory to Caesar rather than Yahweh, which was the existential purpose of Israel. See, the specific problem of paying tribute was was more than, than just an issue of disdain for paying taxes because you wanted to keep as much money as possible. It wasn't like, oh, another tax, that stings. All right, yeah, it's all my money, there it goes. It wasn't like it wasn't so much that. For many of the Jews who sought a nation free from any foreign occupation, whose purpose was to worship the one true God, paying this tribute was a potential form of idolatry. Such such a tax wouldn't go to to fund education or, or help the poor. Such a tax was paid directly to Caesar. It was literally meant to honor the emperor. That was the purpose. Of course, we know that the emperor desired nothing short of worship from his subjects. To get to the heart of the matter, in his commentary on Luke, Daryl Bach points out that the religious leaders are essentially asking, Jesus, are you loyal to Israel looking for its independence, or should we knuckle under to Rome? To give further insight into Jewish thought about paying tribute to Rome in the first century, one of my favorite professors at Southern Seminary, uh, Dr. Tom Schreiner, once noted, Judas the Galilean contended around 6 AD that paying taxes was insufferable Since in paying taxes, one was conceding that Caesar was Lord instead of the one true God. Political revolt, Judas contended, was the only option for those who truly believed in God's lordship. We understand the problem here? We understand the context. It's easy to see the dilemma that they're putting Jesus in here. If Jesus publicly declares that it was right and good to pay his tax, most of the people would see him as antithetical to who the Old Testament said the Messiah would be. After all, the Messiah came to free God's people, not keep them in bondage to a foreign nation. However, if Jesus were to publicly speak against paying the tribute to Caesar, the odds of Jesus being in prison and likely executed by Rome were very high. That's the problem. Now, in Matthew's account of this same event, you don't need to turn there, but you can look at it in your, in your free time. In, in Matthew's account of the same event in Matthew twenty-two fifteen, 15, along with Mark's account of the same event in Mark chapter 12, we're told that it was the Pharisees who were the primary in, instigators in trying to trap Jesus here. It also tells us that the Pharisees brought along the Herodians to join in on the conflict. And the irony here is that the, Phari- the Pharisees were notoriously against Rome. They hated Rome. That's the problem. More than any other group, perhaps besides the zealots, they hated Roman occupation. 
The, the Herodians, on the other hand, as Daryl Bach points out again, favored a solution that let Rome have a mediated presence through the house of Herod. In other words, while the Herodians didn't like Rome, they didn't exactly despise them either. They found some usefulness for the Roman Empire. However, both the Herodians and the Pharisees, along with most of the other religious leaders in Israel, they had this in common. They despised Jesus. That's what they had in common. While they didn't care for Rome, and while these groups actually didn't particularly care for one another, they would certainly use Rome and one another to accomplish their purposes of getting rid of Jesus. Again, I think this story continues to highlight the continued hypocrisy of the religious leaders of the day. Yet the text tells us that Jesus knew exactly what these snakes were up to. In fact, Luke 20, 23 says that Jesus perceived their craftiness. He saw it. He saw right through it. He perceived it. In Job 5, 13, the Bible tells us that God is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. You see, friends, the Bible never speaks well of crafty people. The Bible has nothing good to say about people who are crafty. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul uses the same Greek word for craftiness to describe the the, uh, work of Satan as he deceived Eve. The religious leaders should have used the word of God to bring light to the people. They should have opened it and called people to repentance, to, to call people to come and worship the one true God. They should have used it to highlight God's holiness. That's what the people thought the religious leaders were about. Yet here they are, in an effort to stay in their sin, being crafty, like their father, Satan. And Jesus wasn't having it. Friends, oftentimes our our own blindness causes us to play word games with the Bible. We think that we can become crafty with the text to justify our sinful attitudes and decisions. Satan did it. The religious leaders did it. The false prophets of old did it. We must know this. Jesus is not fooled by our worldly wisdom. Instead, when we are guilty of such sin, Christ will expose us for the frauds that we are. Our only good option is to repent, confess, and bask in the mercy and grace that Christ offers every sinner that comes to him. Point three. Point three. We must pursue the type of worship that Jesus desires. We must pursue the type of worship that Jesus desires. So how does Jesus respond to these questions? Was he phased? Was he scared? Friends, not one bit. Jesus answered the question. At that moment, Jesus asked the religious leaders to show him a denarius. Uh, you might be aware that a denarius was a, a Roman currency that represented a day's worth of wages for a laborer. A denarius is also the currency that was used to pay the tribute that the Pharisees were questioning Jesus about. Now, many, many of the Jews didn't only have a problem with paying tribute to Rome. That wasn't their only problem. Many also had problems with the denarius because they believed it was also a form of idolatry, even possessing one. Why? 
because it had Caesar's face right in the center of it. F.W. Madden, in, in his book, Coins of the Jews, notes, exciting book, by the way. <laughs> F.W. Madden, in his book, Coins of the Jews, notes that the coin would have had the description, Tabor Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, Augustus. Emphasizing the divine aspect of Augustus, of Caesar. It was undoubtedly meant to bring glory to Caesar and signify his rule throughout the empire. It was all about his glory. And as Jesus looks at the denarius, he looks at both sides. He sees the face, he, he reads the inscription, he understands that the currency was Caesar's because it had his likeness and inscription on it. Ultimately, the currency was to be used for whatever purpose that Caesar deemed necessary. Therefore, Jesus says that they can give Caesar back his coin. This is Caesar's coin for his purposes. He made it. He created it. This is Use it for whatever purpose that Caesar chooses or said a different way. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. You see, Jesus wasn't in support of everything that Rome did. Jesus wasn't writing a blank check here and saying that governments have the ultimate freedom in this world to do whatever they wanted. Jesus is laying down what many scholars believe is the basis for Paul, what Paul writes in Romans 13 when he tells the church at Rome to submit to the government and to pay taxes, knowing that the governing authorities are God's agent for order in this world. Does that mean that every government is good? No. Does that mean that they will always make righteous uh, judgments? No, it does not. Yet we are called to render unto them that which is due them. If they demand taxes, from a biblical standpoint, we pay taxes. Yet, Jesus isn't giving a giant treatise on God and government here. Unfortunately, many pastors use this passage to preach a sermon on God and government. However, that is not the main point here. It's not the point. Jesus isn't maximizing the importance of governments here. In fact, he's minimizing the importance of governments. As Jesus states, they have their place in this world, and it is right to honor them and to pay taxes at times. The much larger point is what Jesus says next. That's the point. Jesus says this, and render to God the things that are God's. That is his point here. And what is Jesus referring to? Just like the denarius contained the image and likeness of Caesar, and therefore gave Caesar the right to demand how it was used, Jesus is pointing to something different that contained God's image and likeness, that God would dictate its purpose. And as soon as Jesus said this phrase. The religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Friends, in the first nine chapters of Genesis, we keep seeing the repeated phrase, God made man in his image. Sometimes it's God made man in his likeness, depending on the translation. In fact, one of the largest and earliest themes at the beginning of the Bible is that God made man in his image. For instance, Genesis 1, 26-28 tells us, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, 
after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It wasn't, church, that we physically looked like God. It's not what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. It's not not that we physically looked like God. That's not the purpose. As we teach our children in their catechisms, God does not have a body like man. Not until the second person of the Trinity, the Son, put on flesh and dwelt among us, did God have an actual body. We get an idea of what being made in God's image looks like just by looking at Genesis 1, 26 through 28. What was man created to do in Genesis 1, 26? He was created to take dominion. That's a more sophisticated way of saying that man was created to rule on earth. Then after repeating that God made man and woman in his image, Again, Genesis 1.28 tells us that God commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and, and to watch over the earth. In other words, he was calling them to create and protect the earth. Adam and Eve were to fill the earth with other image bearers in the earth. They would rule, create, and protect. When one reads the Genesis account, No other part of God's creation was given these responsibilities. Sure, they could walk, they could fly, they could eat, they could swim, they could do all these other things. But no other part of God's creation was made in his image and likeness, man. And no other part of God's creation was given these responsibilities except for man. This was unique to man. Friends, this is what it means to be image bearers of God. Our lives were meant to point to the character and to the work of God. That's what it means to be an image bearer. We rule because God is a ruling God. We create because God is a creator God. We watch over the earth because God is a protector and a cultivator. In other words, our lives were meant to image God and to bring him glory. However, we know that sin entered the world through Adam and greatly harmed our ability to perfectly image God in this world. Rather than perfectly reflecting the holiness of God, we often reflect the character of Satan. Rather than submitting to God, we rebel against God. Yet even despite sin entering the world, we see that sinful Adam is described as being made in the image and likeness of God. In in Genesis chapter 5, you can find that. Then we see Adam's son. Seth identified as being made in the likeness of Adam as well. In other words, the Bible still refers to fallen man as being made in the image and likeness of God, in spite of their sin. Taking it back to our our story in Luke, like the denarius bore the likeness and inscription of Caesar, all of mankind bears the image and likeness of God. Everyone. When Jesus says to render unto God that which is God's, he is saying that all of mankind bears God's likeness. Therefore, the Lord God is Lord of all. 
Amen. He's Lord of all. What, what do you mean about the people in the Middle East who want nothing to do with Jesus? Lord of all. What, what, about, the, what about the people in the, in the most random tribe that no one's ever seen or heard of, the human hasn't even contacted with? Lord of all. Every square inch of this earth, every person, God is Lord of all. And what is God asking for? What is he asking for? God's word tells us this. In Leviticus 19.2, Yahweh tells his people, Israel, to be holy, for I am holy. Your image bearers? Well, I'm holy, therefore you are to be holy. Leviticus 19.2, be holy, for I am holy. He still calls them to be image bearers. What does holiness look like? What did it practically look like for the Israelites to be holy? Well, God gave them the law. In fact, it was through Israel's obedience to the law that they would be a light to the nations as they display the character, precepts, goodness, and, ju and justice of God. We, we get a glimpse of this in Deuteronomy 4, 6-8, through 8, where God tells Israel, keep them and do them, them being the, obeying, obeying the law. For uh, that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that his statutes and rules so righteous uh, and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? It was through obedience to the law that they would image God to the nations as his character and justice are displayed. However, lest you think that imaging God was simply an outward expression of obedience, we know that the law isn't summed up in action, but affection. In Deuteronomy 6.4, the law is summed up this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This was the heart of the law. To love God with all that you are. God isn't simply to be an add-on to your life. God is to be everything to you, church. He is to be our greatest love, our greatest desire, and our greatest pursuit in this life. This, this is what is due to God. God is entitled to this sort of perfect obedience and these sorts of authentic affections for his creatures. He is God. We are not. Unfortunately, we know throughout the Old Testament that Israel never came close to following the law. They never came close to loving God the way he demanded they love him. They were guilty. They deserved the wrath of God. And just like Israel, every other human being that walked the face of this earth has been an imperfect image bearer of God. They are guilty, all of us, of insurrection before their creator. And they all, all of us, deserve God's wrath. And as Jesus mentions, rendering unto God that which is God's, the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. And they stood condemned by what Jesus said. In their efforts to condemn Jesus before the law of Rome, Jesus condemns them before the law of God. 
The text tells us that like their father, Satan, they were unable to catch Jesus in any wrongdoing. Rather, they stood in silence before the Son of God. We must understand that all who try to boast, rebel, or manipulate our holy God will lose. We will never outwit him. We will never outplay him. All day, every day, our God wins and silences his critics. He will defeat every one of his enemies. Yet, we don't have to stand condemned. There is a way for things to be made right between us and God. You might ask, how? Through the law? And Brian, I thought you already said that no one has ever followed the law. I, I thought that no one has ever loved God with all their heart and soul and all their might, right? Well, well friends, that is, that is half true. There was one. There was one. He wasn't an imperfect or flawed image of God at all. In, in fact, Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John 1.1 1, 1 says of this one that, that he is God. John 1.14 says that this guy, he, he became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Uh, to, to sum it up, that God put on flesh, that God became a man. And he didn't just come to earth. He came to do something. Romans 8, 3 through 4 says that he came to obey the law for us so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled for us. We couldn't fulfill it. We couldn't do what God asked. God put on flesh to do it for us. And this, this sounds like great news, but doesn't our sin need to still be paid for. What about our debt? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This means that the sinless God-man took our punishment for us. How did this happen exactly? Well, Colossians 2.14 tells us that this God-man paid our penalty by dying on a cross for our sins, and therefore the wrath of God that was due is canceled. And not only that, but this God-man, he rose from the dead on the third day, defeating death once and for all. This is good news, church. That's why 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory. Even gets better. Colossians 3.10 tells us that this, this body and this life that no longer perfectly images the Lord God is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Friends, we are a new creation. The old is past. It's gone. The Lord God has put his spirit within us to make us more like Christ every day. The Holy Spirit empowers us to love Christ and worship Christ in a way that honors and pleases God because of our work? No! 
Because of the work of Christ and friends, we are in him. As we close, I, I must ask, how then will we live, Community Bible Church? In light of what Christ has done, will we render unto God that which is God's? 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says it this way, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do we see this as our main goal and pleasure in life? To honor and glorify Christ with all that we are. Or are we content to live in hypocritical, unrepentant sin and dishonor what Christ did for us? Are we to offer up half-hearted worship to Christ? Or are we to pray and pray and pray until God ignites our hearts on fire with a passion for his name? Will we go out into this world as image bearers of the Lord God, desiring to obey our King as we make disciples of all nations? Will we repent of our sin? Will we pursue righteousness? Will we love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? By the power of the Spirit, we can. By the power of the Spirit, we must. This is what is due Christ and nothing less.